Well, it has been 34 weeks, 245 days since we have gathered together in this room for worship. And as I was thinking about that, I I know that many of you, myself included, were so excited to gather together once again to worship our Lord in person. And even though that isn't happening today, we still believe that we are gathered together as one church, albeit scattered all around the Fraser Valley and indeed even around the world. And so as we gather together and worship wherever you are today, welcome to worship. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, please. We are going to be entering into Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 7. And while you're looking there, let me give a bit of a refresher um, for most of you. uh, Perhaps just bring people up to speed for those who are joining us for the first time. We have been walking through this Ephesus series. The first three chapters have been helping us understand the foundation of our faith that before Christ, we were dead to our sin. We had nothing to our name and there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves from our predicament. But on account of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are now heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ Jesus. We have a firm foundation. And after laying out that firm foundation that we are now the elect of God, we are children of God, of the Most High God, we now believe that there is also a unique calling for our life. So this past week, what was the first challenge the Apostle Paul gave us? The first thing he wanted us to do, he wanted us to have unity as a church. I find it so fascinating of all the instructions that he could give us, the first words out of his mouth is, now that you have received the calling of God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be unified as a church. Because, as we learned last week, our unity is the way in which God's kingdom is expanded in the world. As the world looks at the church, when they see a unified church, they say, how could it possibly be that a a variety of individuals can gather together and be so completely unified? And then we show them Jesus. And today, we are going to learn the second instruction that the Apostle Paul wants to give us. And I think it can be summarized in these four words. I put it this way in your note sheet. Every member is sent. Every Christian is sent. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. But truth be told, I believe that there's a couple of myths that are alive and well in the church today. And so I believe we have to engage in some unlearning before we can learn the profound truth of what the Apostle Paul wants to teach us in Ephesians 4. So before we read our text, let me engage two myths that are in the church today. The first one I put this way in your note sheet. It's what I refer to as the holy place myth. The holy place myth. See, unlike the Old Testament... When the kabod, that's the Hebrew word for the glory of God, it resided within the four walls of the temple. Or when the people of Israel were scattered and they were not in Jerusalem, they were not in a designated place, the kabod of God was in the tabernacle. And once we see Jesus die on the cross and the curtain is torn in two, the Holy Spirit, the glory of God, now rests not within an edifice, not within an organization, not within a building or a place, 
but the Holy Spirit resides in the people of God. See, what I find so fascinating is of all the religions in the world, all of them, except for Christianity, believe that God resides in an edifice. God resides in a building. But Christians are the only people, the only religion that states that God is not in the business of sanctifying objects. God is in the business of sanctifying people. People. And when we are gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ, we become the dwelling place of the Most High God. Let me just share a few passages of Scripture that highlight this. 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, that being Jesus, the living stone, the Apostle Paul says Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Peter says he's the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you and me, Also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so like I said, every other religion on the planet says God is in the business of sanctifying only particular people or God's in the business of sanctifying particular objects. Christians say no, God sanctifies Christians. You are the holy place of God and of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Who is in you? Whom you have received from God. And we uh, read this just a couple of weeks ago. If you're in Ephesians 4, look back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. This is what Paul taught us. You and I, are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And in him, the whole building, that's us, the people of God, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Circle, highlight, underline. And in him, you too, you the people, are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Do you see what Paul is saying here? See, this is why I think it's so ironic, so providential that we are reading Ephesians chapter four today of all days, the day when we anticipated finally after 245 days to be gathered together in this room and now I'm just here with Marcel and Adam. That's it. And we also got a few upstairs. Thanks for being here. And so we were disappointed, weren't we? That we couldn't be together in this place. And you might recall, um, I think it was on March 12th, I sent out a video on Facebook and I reminded us of uh, that children's nursery rhyme that goes a little bit like this. Here's the church, here's the steeple, and inside here's all the people, you remember that? And I said, we need to throw away that notion because what do we find in scripture? What do we find in 1 Peter, in 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians? What do we find throughout all of scripture? The nursery rhyme ought to go a little bit like this. Here's the building, here's the steeple, and inside here's the church. We are the church of God, collectively the people of God, living stones being built into a spiritual house to become the dwelling place of the most high God. And if there is any benefit to COVID-19, perhaps it's an opportunity once again to see that God does not sanctify objects, he sanctifies people, that you are the dwelling place of the Most High God. 
So whether you're at home or whether you're at the gym later this week watching this, you are the church. You are the church. Think back to uh, before COVID started. You might uh, recall a couple of days when uh, maybe you were just scrambling, trying to get to church on time. And, and if you have kids, they're going really slow and they're kind of dragging their bodies around the house. And maybe, just maybe, you said something like, hurry up, you're going to be late for what? Help me out. For church. You're going to be late for church. Maybe, just maybe, we need to cast a new vision for our children. Maybe, just maybe, what we could say to our children when they're dilly-dallying and they're going too slow and you're trying to get them in the car and you're stressed out, you could tell them, hurry up. Why? Because the church isn't the church without us. Because the church isn't a place. It's the gathering people of God. The church isn't the church without us, and so we got to get there. Or at the very least, just tell them, hurry up. We are the church. You know, the word church, the Greek word church, ekklesia, which means sent ones, it occurs 114 times in the New Testament. And of those 114 times, 112 times, it is used to refer to the people gathered together and not the building that they inhabit. And you might be saying to yourself, well, what about the other two times? Well, I'm glad you asked. There's two times that this happens. John chapter 2, and it's when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, and he tells them that the temple will be uh, torn apart. It will be broken down, and after three days, it will rise again. And in that instance, he's referring to his own body, his own death and resurrection. And the other time is in Acts chapter 6 when an ordinary Christian named Stephen goes toe-to-toe with the Sadducees and he tells them, he tells them that they have inaccurately said that the Holy Spirit lives in a temple when the Holy Spirit lives in people. And do you know what I find so ironic about these two stories? In both of them, they were accused for speaking against the temple and both of them were murdered on account of it. They were murdered because they spoke against the holy place myth. There's no more holy places, only holy people ordained by God to do holy work. And that leads to the second myth, the holy person myth. The holy person myth is the belief, the belief that there's usually one, or if you're a part of a bigger church, maybe two or three or four holy people who do all the holy work within the holy place. And it is a, a cheap comparison to what we find in Scripture. Um, just last week, we celebrated 503 years since the Reformation, uh, a time in which a priest named Martin Luther wrote down 95 reasons why he felt, even though he was a priest, the Catholic Church and the Pope were on the wrong path. And there was one particular topic that he talked about more than any other one that captivated the attention of the Europeans during that time, and it was the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And here's what he said. He said, Holy Scripture writes of not more than one spiritual priesthood. It makes all of us, you and me, equal priests. For priests, number one, the baptized, number two, and Christians, number three, are all one and the same. Do you realize just how radical of a statement that was in the 16th century Catholic Church? 
And may I say, do you realize just how radical of a statement it is today still? To believe that every single one of us are ordained priests, ordained ministers, filled with the Holy Spirit to do the work of God? And to to recognize that that it's not just about these super apostle Christians who are seminary trained or or who have uh, the title of pastor or missionary or priest or who have squeaky clean pasts and that we're the only ones who are called. See, we have to die to that notion that there's only a select few people who are called and for the rest of us, our responsibility is to go to church, pay our tithes so that the religious spiritual people can do their religious spiritual work and and we follow the Ten Commandments and that's it. No, 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 that's not true. The Holy Spirit is not confined to a building and the Holy Spirit is not confined to a few select super apostles. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Now here's what this means. If we believe this, there's three things that happen within us. We believe that number one, we represent Christ because that's what a priest did in the Old Testament. They stood in the gap. They represented God to the people and they represented people to God. But on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, we believe that we represent Christ when we go out our door. That's number one. Number two, it means you have access to Christ. Do you know the Pope, uh, a week after COVID hit the whole world, he made a fascinating statement. There was a lot of Catholics who said, well, if we can't go to mass and if we can't go to the confession booth, how can we absolve our sins? How can we talk and communicate with God? And, And the Pope said, well, why don't you go directly to Jesus? Why don't you confess your sins directly to God? And every Protestant Christian said, well, yeah, of course we can do that. But that was a a scandalous, radical claim for the Catholic Church. But something that we know and believe is that we represent Christ and we have direct access to Christ. And number three, you are given the Holy Spirit to do the work of Christ. Those three things are granted and credited to you if you are a follower of Jesus. Every Christian is sent. Jesus said the same thing when he highlighted the Great Commission to his disciples, who later turned apostles. He said this. He said, come and follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. See, if if you've stepped over the line to follow Jesus, what that means is, you are sent. And the only question that remains is where and how. Lord, where are you sending me? And how is it going to look? What's it going to look like? But but I believe here's the question that we that we need to really wrestle with today. The question that we have to ask is is this true of you? Is it true of me? Am I living my life as though I am a sent person? As though God has sent me? See, the more I study scripture, the more I grow in my conviction that the purpose of the church isn't simply a bunch of people to gather together in a room and to bask in the anointing of one prophetic teacher, but to grow in our sure and certain knowledge that each and every one of us are called by God to do the work of God in the world. You and me. And so to that end, I want to walk you through Ephesians chapter 4 
so that we can see firsthand what the Apostle Paul is highlighting, that we are all sent people. He starts in Ephesians 4 verse 1, a recap to last week. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the what? What's the word? Of the calling to which you have received. And he says the same thing in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were, there's the word again, called to the one hope with which you were, just in case you didn't hear it, called. You are called. Every Christian is sent. And then we get to verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. Take a look at this. But to each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and, hear this, he gave gifts to his people. Verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, for what purpose? Why did he give pastors? For this reason, to equip his people for the work of service so that the whole body of Christ might be built up until we all, believers and those who don't believe in Jesus yet, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, you and me and every other Christian, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As each part does its work. See, all of Ephesians 4 is a vision a picture of what it would look like if ordinary Christians raised up the mantle and said, I believe that the Holy Spirit lives in me and wants to do a good work not only in me, but through me for the sake of the world, to transform the world. And so if you're with your family today, you you can look at your neighbor and you can say, Justin's talking about you. And then you can look back and you can say, no, he's talking about you. You are sent. Every single one of us, if we are followers, Of Jesus. And if we live as sent people, there's going to be a couple of convictions that we are going to hold in our heart. Things that we're going to say to ourselves. The first conviction that we are going to have is we're going to say, God wants to use me. God wants to use me. Or as I've shared with you, every Christian is a priest. Every Christian is a minister. God wants to use me. I am God's plan A in the world and there is no other plan B. I am the tip of the gospel spear. See, throughout history, ordinary Christians have been the tip of the gospel spear. And I just want to give you one example of this. Um, It's Acts chapter 6 through Acts chapter 11. And if later today you want to read those six chapters, it is a fascinating story of how ordinary Christians expand the gospel. In many ways, if you read through the book of Acts, you discover that all the apostles, like Peter and Simon of Cyrene and and Paul and Barnabas and, and all the rest, they're kind of minor characters. And the people who rise to the surface are these unnamed Christians who expand the gospel through the ministry that God is working through them. 
So let me just give you one of these stories. It starts in Acts chapter 6, where Jesus has given the great commission to his apostles to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. But all we see is everyone is stuck in their holy huddles in Jerusalem. They're not going anywhere. They're not spreading the good news. And then in Acts chapter 6, like I shared with you already a little bit earlier, a a guy named Stephen, he's not an apostle. He's not seminary trained. He has no formal training. He's just an ordinary Christian. And Stephen goes toe-to-toe with the Sadducees. And on account of that, they put him to death. And just a sidebar, do you know where the Apostle Paul is at this time? He's holding everyone's cloak in approval while they pick up stones to murder Stephen. And only later does he become a follower of Jesus. So at least during that time, the author of this book is holding cloaks. And immediately after Stephen is stoned, a great persecution breaks out and all of the Christians scatter and what they intended for evil, God intended for good and it is the first time that Christians are all over the place sharing the good news of Jesus. But then we pick up on Acts chapter 10 and we find that the apostles, they're trying to get to Antioch because they believe that's a strategic location where if they could get there, the gospel's gonna spread like wildfire. But for one reason or another, Peter and the rest of the apostles can't get there. Then we get to Acts chapter 10. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed spread the word only to the Jews. So that's the first problem. They're sharing it with their friends. They're sharing it with the same ethnic group, but they're not spreading it to everyone. Some of them, however, the brothers from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. What the super apostles couldn't do these unnamed brothers did. And I find it so fascinating that at least according to the author of Acts, Luke, uh, at least according to him, those who expanded the gospel even more than the apostles was this uneducated man named Stephen and these unknown men, the brothers. And I find it so curious And I'm just guessing here, I I don't know if this is actually true, but I find it curious that Luke actually knew who these men were. He indicates where they're from. They're from Cyprus and Cyrene. He knows them. But why does he leave them unnamed? And he actually does this a number of times throughout Acts. Why does he do that? I believe he's highlighting what we're talking about today, a recognition that the gospel isn't simply being spread by all the super apostles, but by ordinary people believers filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, God wants to use you. And you might say, but Justin, I have no formal education. I'm not seminary trained. And I would say to you, neither was Stephen. Neither were the brothers of Cyprus and Cyrene. You might say, but Justin, I'm young. What could I possibly do? And I would say to you, well, so was David. So was Daniel. So was Timothy. You might say, Justin, I I don't even know what that would look like. What what would I have to do? And I'm going to say to you, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me just cast a vision for you, what I believe to be the most important question, or better yet, the most important posture we ought to take 
if we want to live as though we are called Christians. And I think it always, always, always starts with this, that we take on a posture of saying, wherever I am and whatever God has gifted me in, I will do it for the glory of God. No matter where I am, whatever my gifts are, whatever the circumstances of my life, wherever God puts me in his providence, in his sovereignty, I'm gonna do it for the glory of God. And that's the posture that we ought to take. So, so this is the goal. For those of us who are Christians, we fundamentally believe and we recognize that the Holy Spirit lives in me to do a good work in the world. And then you might ask yourself, okay, what's the job of pastors? Justin, are you trying to work yourself out of a job? Here's what we see. The role of a pastor is to remind you of your God-given potential, to serve as a coach, a mentor, a guide to equip you for the work of ministry. Look again at your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. And God gave us the apest, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, pastors, and teachers. For what reason? To equip the saints. That's all of us. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until all of us, those of us who believe and those of us who don't believe yet, but they will, all of us will reach unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. But you know, here's what the church often looks like. What it often looks like is a church is a place where we go rather than something we are, and we tend to outsource the ministry to the professional Christians, and that vision pales in comparison to what Scripture highlights for us to do. And if I can get really personal with you for a moment, I believe, <coughs> excuse me, I believe that the Reformed Church ought to be at the forefront of this movement because after all, we are gateway reformed church. We have our roots rooted in the Reformation 503 years ago with this earthly notion that each and every one of us are priests ordained by, by God to do the work of ministry. See, what inspired the Europeans in the 16th century wasn't simply the finer points of doctrine, but this earthly notion that a missionary overseas or a farmer out in the field or a mother changing poopy diapers or a custodian moving a mop are engaged in equally spiritual practices to that of the Pope. That was the scandal of the Reformation. That was the radical nature of the Reformation, that all of us are engaged in spiritual ministry for the glory of God. And if I can be so bold, I think in many ways we have fallen back into a 16th century notion of what makes the church to church. A place to go run by professional Christians. And never, ever, ever did God intend for it to be that way. And so right on the heels of believing that God wants to use me, this is, this is the second conviction we believe. The Holy Spirit fills me. Fills me. See, what gives ordinary people extraordinary confidence is knowing full well that the creator of the universe lives in me and wants to do a good work through me. Remember the story of David and Goliath? Why did David have such conviction? 
Everyone else was so afraid of Goliath. Look at how big he is. Look at how strong he is. Why could he have the conviction that he had? Because even though he was weaker than Goliath, he knew that God was far stronger. See, we get so caught up in ourselves that we tend to be afraid. But imagine if we had the perspective of knowing that the Holy Spirit, the creator of the universe, the one who knit me together in my mother's womb, now lives in me for the glory and the advancement of his purposes. You know, there's a humorous story in scripture where uh, Jesus comes up to his disciples and he says, I have to leave you. And they're all shocked and afraid. (laughs) And here's what he says. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage, (laughs) to your advantage that I have to go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And I am sure that the disciples thought to themselves, how could it be possibly for our advantage for you to leave? Jesus, you walk on water. You cause the raging storm to cease with a shh. You find a little boy's lunchbox of five loaves and two fish and you feed 5,000 men and their families. You go out into the wilderness where there's no one and thousands of people flock to you to hear your preaching. People repent, they're baptized, they follow you. How could it possibly be to our advantage for you to leave? And Jesus says, you don't get it yet. You don't understand that when I leave... I'm going to send each and every one of you my Holy Spirit so that you can engage in the same practices that I am doing today. And I believe these are one of those topics where we kind of give it lip service, but do we actually believe it? Do we actually believe it? See, we're at a crossroads right now. We unfortunately have to make a decision between two radical ideas. The first radical idea is to actually believe what I'm telling you, what what scripture tells you, that you are filled with the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. And the second radical idea is to say, I actually don't believe what Jesus is saying. You gotta pick one of the two. And either way, it's gonna be a pretty radical idea. And so here's what I wanna share with you. Are you excited about the fact that every single time you exit out your door, the Holy Spirit goes with you? Do you live with that kind of assurance, with that kind of clarity that the powerful creator of the universe lives in you? I want to speak to um, just the youth, the, the young people, for a moment. See, if you're a teenager, if you're a young person, Oftentimes, for those of us who are older, for those of us who are learned Christians and have been following Jesus for a long, long time, we often forget the things that we already believe in. And we need to be reminded of the things we already know. And many times throughout history, it has been a movement of young people, a movement of youth who have reminded us of the things that we knew but we simply forgot. And maybe, just maybe, God is charging the young people of this church and throughout the Christian world to make a movement for us to remember this once again. And you might say, but Justin, I'm young. What could I possibly do? Once again, do you believe that the Holy Spirit lives in you? If so, God can do amazing things through you. And so to everyone, I want to put it this way to you. Oftentimes, it has more to do with your availability than your ability. It has more to do with your availability than it does your ability. 
The Holy Spirit can do more through one obedient, surrendered, willing, and available vessel than the most gifted, most powerful, or the richest who does things for their own gain or on their own ability. God wants to work in you, and he wants to work through you. And the posture of our hearts ought to be this. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Here I am, Lord. Send me. And that leads to the third and final point. Once we know that God wants to use me and he wants the Holy Spirit to fill me, the third and final conclusion is this. Jesus, who is worthy, is looking for my availability. I want to ask you a question. Where do you think you would be without Jesus? The answer to that question is in exactly the same predicament as millions of people are without you. Have you ever wrestled with your obligations to the gospel? Have you ever wrestled with your obligations to those who are made in the image and likeness of God who don't yet know the name of Jesus? Have you ever wrestled with your obligation that God is calling you, compelling you to expand his kingdom in the world? And he says to you, he says, Justin, or he says to you, listener, I have called you and I have appointed you to a particular task that you would bring about my kingdom in the world, that you would share the good news of the gospel. Have you wrestled with the reality that you are called? If you've been following Jesus more than 10 minutes, you are called. I like to think that in eternity, there's going to be a moment where I get to have conversations with those who became followers of Jesus on account, not of anything good that I've done, but through God's working power through me that they would come to know Jesus, and we could spend the rest of eternity rejoicing in God for that great gift. But then also, I I think sometimes Will there be a moment on judgment day when I will look back on my life and wonder why didn't I go all in? Why wasn't I totally and completely surrendered to the idea that God has called me for this task? If you've seen the movie Schindler's List, there's, there's a scene in that movie that, that always brings me to tears. And it's the story about Schindler and uh, he's hiding Jews in plain sight. He builds a concentration camp of sorts and he starts purchasing Jews and they work in his factory to do work, but really he's just trying to keep them alive. And if you know your history well, you know that the vast majority of Jews were murdered in the last week leading up to their surrender. When, they, when, when uh, Nazi Germany knew that they were going to lose the war, they lined up Jews and, and they murdered most of them. And so when he realized that had happened, he, he's standing before all the men and women that he had saved. And he takes off his watch and he says, why didn't I use this? Why didn't I get rid of this watch? This would have saved two more people. And then he takes off his coat and, and he says, this would have saved three more lives. Why didn't I give my coat? And he looks at them for an answer. He says, why? Why didn't I do that? Why didn't I go all in? And I wonder, are we going to feel that way too? Are we going to look back on our life and wonder, why didn't I go all in? Why didn't I completely surrender to Jesus? 
Why didn't I live such a missional life that it was my life's work to make sure that those who don't know Jesus would know Jesus? And I think the only way that we can do that is if we see the worthiness of Jesus. What I mean by that is everything that we've learned in Ephesians chapter 1 through chapter 3, where we see that before Christ we were dead to our sin, that it was not on account of ourselves, our goodness, our merit, being sharper than the average tool in the shed. It was everything to do with Jesus. And then, when you're on the other side, when you are adopted into the household of God, God looks at you and he says, son, daughter, now it's your turn to go out into the world and to look for those who are lost. Have we considered the obligations that we owe to the gospel? I want to share a quote with you that I think I shared with you about four months ago, but I think it bears repeating. It's from Charles Spurgeon, and he says this. He says, The fact is, brothers and sisters, we must have conversion work here. We cannot go on as some churches do without converts. We cannot, we will not, we must not, we dare not. Souls must be converted here. And if there may not be born to Christ... May the Lord grant to me that I might just sleep in the tomb and be heard no more. Better indeed for us to die than to live if souls be not saved. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees. What a picture. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. Let not, let not one of them go unwarned or unprayed for. See, this is a man pursuing the Great Commission, and the Great Commission does not belong solely to professional Christians like Justin. It belongs to every single one of us. And the only way that we can have this picture in our mind is if we can see the worthiness of Jesus. If that humbles our hearts and compels us to share the good news. So this is my charge to you if you are a follower of Jesus. God wants to use you. The Holy Spirit wants to fill you. And Jesus, who is worthy of all praise and all adoration, is looking for your availability. And so with open hands, my encouragement to you is to say this. Here I am, Lord. Send me. And you might say, Justin... Could you give me an example? What would it look like to live as a sent person? I'm glad you asked. You know, a couple months ago when we were putting together this Ephesians series, I didn't know where everything was going to land, but we've had this series locked week to week for at least four months. And then we reached out to Leslie Ahrens asking if she would share her God story with us, not knowing where that would land either. And so ironically, no, providentially, It just so happens that she is going to share her God story with us today. And her challenge to us is to live as sent people. And so, people of Gateway, let's hear and see Leslie's God story. My 
My name is Leslie and I was born and raised here in Abbotsford and even baptized here at Gateway as an infant and um, as I grew up, God to me was always really normative. I um, went to the Abbotsford Christian School and kind of thought everybody knew who God was and he was this almighty being that you invited into your heart and then life kind of kept going on. It wasn't until I was 14 and I went to um, Mexico on a mission trip with Gateway and there was a moment being in the crowd and the preacher was speaking and I felt the Lord telling me that I had to make a stance in my faith and God was calling me to do something more and he was calling me that I needed to make Jesus Christ Lord of my life and I needed to live in a way that was glorifying to him. Uh, it was after that moment that I felt really convicted and compelled to just live this life radically for God in that I, if I wanted to do it, I, I had to do it right. So I professed my faith right away um, here at Gateway. After I graduated high school in 2010, I had an opportunity to go to Zambia on a two-week missions trip. So I went there and I was excited and the moment I got there, I was terrified. There were no giraffes running around. There were no zebras just out in my backyard. But while I was there, the Lord really spoke to me. And I really feel like the Holy Spirit was guiding me and where he wanted me to be going in my life. We were in a church converted to a school during the day for about 300 kids. And there are five, 10 teachers tops. And the leaders that we were with, they were washing the feet of these teachers. And while we were watching this happen, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, I want you to do this, and I want you to be coming back to Africa. I started attending U of C, where I started participating in the GEMS program here as a leader. That's where I heard about the Esther School. Was really encouraged by some leaders there to look into the Esther School and see what it's about, and I would look at the blogs, and I would look at what was happening, and it was all really exciting to me, and I knew that something big was happening there. I knew that God was working there, and I thought, oh, maybe one day I can go, but by the time I graduate university, I'll probably be married, want to start a family. I won't be able to do that. So it was the summer before I graduated university, and I went to a worship night with some friends of mine. Went into this prayer room, and I just sat under a poster of the, of the world map, Eventually, I just was like, God, like, what is my future? What is my purpose? Like, what am I doing? And then I, in moments of tears, just crying with my, by myself, I heard him say, go. And I knew exactly what the Holy Spirit was saying in that moment. He wanted me to go to the Esther School. Also, I just got really overwhelmed with questions like, who gets married after they move to Zambia? Uh, my family's gonna forget about me. I'm gonna become obsolete and gonna be forgotten. Like, this is not what I wanna be doing. The Holy Spirit then gave me a picture of me sitting surrounded by a group of Zambian children, and He just said, I'm gonna give you so much more joy than you've ever experienced. And all those worries didn't go away, but I knew that I didn't have to worry about them anymore. And in the moment, I thought that he was meaning that I was going to be happy because I was going to Zambia. But now fast forward four years and here I am back in Canada, not in Zambia because of COVID. And it's been a real wrestle for me of, but God, I thought you wanted me to be there. I thought that's where I was going to find my joy. I thought that's where my purpose was going to be. 
But I'm realizing when he said, I'm going to give you the joy and the purpose, it's because I was obeying him. And it was because I was following his will for my life. And the joy that I receive from living in my purpose for God is more joy than I've ever experienced in my entire life. When I came back in, in March because of COVID, I was frustrated, angry, annoyed, sad, disappointed, all those negative terms. But it wasn't until I, I let go of what I was wanting and what I was envisioning for my life and realized that God has this. He's in control. He didn't make a mistake in having me here. There's a reason I'm here. I just need to open my hands and open my eyes to be willing to say yes to what he has. When I look at all the different things in my life, I, I don't look have the world standards of what is to make me happy. I don't, have a, I don't own a house. I'm, I'm not married. I don't have kids. I don't have all those things. But those don't depict my happiness or my joy. What it is is being in truth with God's will and being in alignment with what he wants for my life. When the difference between when I first accepted Christ when I was 14 to now, I initially saw God as a being that we accept him and then we move on and that's all that happens in our life. But as I've been growing, I've realized that he wants so much more from us, not to burden us or to weigh down, but to gift us and to give us a fullness of life. So by living in his purpose and his will for me, I've realized that that's where the true joy comes from. And in giving my yes and being obedient to him, he's going to bring joy through that. It's not through what we accumulate or what we do, but it's through serving him and loving him. And, and at the end of the day, giving everything back to him. I just want to go forward and know that as the church, we hold the gift and we hold the power of the Holy Spirit and we hold the truth that the world is hungry for and the world wants to hear and needs to hear. And no matter where we are in life, and I know COVID has messed up a lot of our plans, but God knows what's happening. He sees what's happening, but he still has goodness for every single one of us. If we just look and see, okay, God, where do you want me to go? I think even in this crazy COVID world, God still can and does want to use all of us wherever we are, whether it's here, in our homes, at the church, wherever. I think we just need to open our hands and be willing to serve, and he's going to bring us so much more joy in that yes and in that obedience. My name is Leslie, and this is my God story.